You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, uh, a couple years ago, Rachel and I were down in St. Louis. We were at a, uh, a Christmas dinner for a bunch of other Acts 29 pastors kind of in the area, in the region. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, you guys will come to find out that uh, besides the Bible, it appears that the only other two people I read are Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis, and that's like 70% true. There's a couple other ones sprinkled in. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that the, the best sound in all the wor- world is the sound of the laughter of friends. He specifically said adult male laughter as he was thinking about his gathering of friends, but it, it, it rings true. There is probably nothing I enjoy better than sitting down with people that I know and care about and laughing over good food and good drink. And so as we were gathered at this uh, restaurant over in St. Charles, Missouri, food was out, drinks were out, and we began to tell stories. And of course, as naturally happens, especially with people that know each other but don't know each other really well, we started to tell kind of stories of our past. And one of the stories that came up was the story of how did you meet and how did you get engaged? And, and I will never, as long as I can have any memory in my mind, forget the two stories of proposals that were told that night. The first one was over the top. So this, this guy, this pastor, begins to tell this story about how he was a youth leader and he had this, this, this friend of his who was a woman that helped him lead youth. And after this kind of big kind of church event uh, at this kind of uh, gathering space, he, he took her and he said, hey, I got to go back to the church for just a minute. I, I forgot uh, to grab something from the church. Will you come with me? And and so she was like, yeah, I'll come. And so they, they walked back to the church, and it was like a big, long, shotgun-style church. And so they came in the front door, and, and he said, hey, just grab, grab a seat up at the piano on the stage. I'll just run back to the office and grab uh, what I was looking for. And, and so she sat down at the piano bench, and unbeknownst to her, he ran upstairs up to the balcony, so on the other end of the sanctuary, and he pulled out a guitar and he started singing this love song that he had wrote for her. I was like, wow. And then he said, at the end of the love song, I invited her to, to open the, 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 the bar of the piano. And, and sitting there was this ring. And I, and I, I just I proposed from up there. And I said, will you, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And I was like, that's That's impressive. Then another guy piped up, and I'm thinking, man, if you're going to go after this, dude, you've got to have something, like, big. And he said, well, I will tell you this. I didn't propose once to my wife. I proposed three times to my wife. And I'm like, okay. And he said, let me tell you why I proposed three times, because the first two times were at a quick trip gas station. And she said no both of the times. And someone said, what did she say the second time? And he said, I believe it sounded like no. And I said, why? And she said, because we're at a gas station and you're sweaty. (laughs) I I love telling stories about our lives. There's something within us that we are created as a storytelling people, a storytelling creation. The Lord has given us minds that remember and words that communicate. This last year, if as Pastor Adam said, you've been a part of gospel community, one of the things that we've done over the last year is we've told our stories. And specifically, we've tried to learn how to tell our stories as Christ followers. Right, if you've ever heard someone's testimony before, there, there's typically two types of testimonies. There's the one that only a few people have that are incredibly dramatic, and, and, and you just kind of go, oh my goodness, like you came from 
real darkness into real life, and it's just over the top. And then for most people, our stories with Christ, they feel kind of stale. Right? They, we tell them, and they tend to be filled mainly with facts, oftentimes a lack of emotion, and even when we tell them, we oftentimes tell them where, where we are the hero of our story with Christ. But the story of us and Christ Jesus ought to be the best story that we ever tell. It ought to be the one that we think about the most. It ought to be the one that when we recall it, bubbles up the most emotion and the most feeling. It ought to be the story that we truly know changed our life and eternity more than anything else. Because the relationship with Christ Jesus is bigger than any relationship. His love is better than any other love, and His story that we have been invited into is far more compelling than every story that has ever been told or ever will be told. Today, we are going to see an amazing love story between Jesus and an unlikely woman. Now let me give you a little bit of warning because we're going to be going through 42 verses. And I'm not warning you because I'm long-winded. I'm warning you because that's a lot of information for us to process through. Right, uh, uh, several years ago I took a flight over to Ghana in West Africa. And it was at nighttime and, and we flew from Chicago all the way over to Ghana in West Africa. And I don't remember exactly how long, I think it was... 13 hours or something like that was the flight. And I, I couldn't see anything out the window because it was nighttime. So I didn't know when we were over land. I didn't know the entire time we were over the Atlantic Ocean or when we made our, our way along the, the Gold Coast of, of Africa. But what I had was in front of me was this little TV screen where I could watch movies or one of the channels was a picture of a map and a little plane that just progressed moment by moment by moment by moment until we got there. I didn't know exactly where we were. I couldn't see the landscape or the topography below us, but I knew where we were at on the journey. And here's why I tell you that. As we read through an entire interaction with Jesus, a story of 42 verses that has ups and downs and interchanges of conversation, you're going to be prone to want to get kind of stuck into the details, to catch yourself on one word or one small interaction. And what I would rather invite you into this morning is the entire journey, is to be able to follow along with the entire story and how this entire story changes this woman's entire life, because it's not just her story that we're walking through this morning, it's yours and it's mine. The story begins in verse 1 of chapter 4, and John, the gospel writer, says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, as we're reading Scripture, it's always important to, to hold two things in our hands at the same time. One, what exactly this specific passage is saying. But also, an understanding of how the words are being written by the original authors. Here's what I mean by this. Scripture clearly says two different things that are both being communicated in John's introduction into this story. The first one is that God is utterly and completely in control 
over all things. Right? Genesis says, in the beginning, God spoke, and it was. The book of Colossians, describing Jesus, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and before all things, and in him all things hold together. The psalmist declares, our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Solomon, the wisest man we were told that ever lived, informs us that the lot is cast into the lap, the dice is rolled, but its every decision is from the Lord. Paul in Acts chapter 17 says, the Lord made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined beforehand the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. And Jesus himself said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father's hands. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Hear this, Scripture clearly says God is always utterly in control of everything. But Scripture is also written by men who, though guided by the Spirit, Spirit experienced life like we did and like we do. Which is why, as John the Gospel writer begins to tell this story, he uses words like, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And as he was wearied from his journey, he sat beside a well. The Gospel writer tells this story like many other stories that sound like the next day comes, Jesus has to leave the area of Judea, and so he begins to travel towards Galilee. And it just so happens that because north of Judea is Samaria, Jesus has to travel through Samaria, and he gets tired eventually one day, and so it just so happens that he sits down in the middle of the day at this well, and it just so happens that a woman comes out in the middle of the day and happens upon Jesus, and it just so happens that Jesus asks her for a drink of water. It feels that way to us. Because for you and I, who are temporary creatures, bound by time and space, things feel like they just so happen to happen. But that's not who our God is. And that's not how this story occurs. It would have made complete sense for Jesus not to go through Samaria as he traveled back to Galilee. The Samaritans and the Israelites hated each other. The Jewish men and women of that time would have found contact, human physical contact with Samaritans to make them unclean. They wouldn't eat at the same table. They wouldn't have food prepared by their hands. They wouldn't touch dishes that they had used. Most men and women traveling from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north would not have taken the direct route going through Samaria, but they would have traveled around just so they didn't have to deal with those people. But Jesus, Jesus has to go through Samaria because it's the will of his father that he would go and meet with this woman. So here's what I want you to see about the, the, the introduction between Jesus and this woman. This introduction was driven before the foundation of the world by God himself. I've told you guys this so many times as I've stood in this pulpit, and I've told you it mainly because not you need to hear it, but because I need to hear it, and it's this. 
our story always begins and is driven forward not by our impetus and our work and our circumstances or our initiative, but by God's. It's always Him. He's always the one planning it. He's always the one driving it forward. And listen, just like John the Gospel writer or even this woman when she encountered Jesus, life is oftentimes going to feel like you are the one driving the story forward. You might even feel like you're the one pursuing the Lord. We feel like we are the primary actors, but we're not. You know, a couple of years ago, um, we, we took all of our family to the pool in Freeburg. And we took them there because the pool in Freeburg, they've got a diving board. And so I figured, hey, listen, I've got two older boys that are rambunctious and uh, adventure-seeking, and so I just thought, man, they're going to go have a time on the diving board. We'll see flips and twists and everything else, and it'll be great fun. And, and they did. But then my, at that point in time, seven-year-old daughter said, anything you can do, I can do better. And so she got over on the diving board, and before I knew it, she was doing front flips and back flips and back flips with twists and everything else. And at some point in time, some middle school boy got up there and, and did what he thought was a really cool trick, which wasn't cool at all. And so my daughter, with utter confidence, stood up and walked to the end of the diving board. And I'm watching her and, and honestly just beaming as she's showing all these boys up. And she turned around and she went to jump and the board kind of shook a little bit. And so she scooted back onto the board just a little bit. And then she jumped to do a backflip. She nailed her head on the end of the board and fell in the water. Now, dad was over in the shallow end, and the moment that I saw her hit the board, I sprang into action. I, I don't remember how far I swam or how long it took. It didn't feel like it took very long, but I was to her before she knew it as she was coming up out of the water. Now, here's the deal. Hattie was upset. She was flailing. I think she was doing everything she could to get her bearings around her and to swim, but she wasn't going to swim anywhere because I had her and I was going to carry her to the side, carry her out of the pool and carry her off to safety. She could move, she could flail, she could try and work all that she wanted, but at the end of the day, when her father decided that it was time for her to be carried, her feet weren't going to touch the ground. Hear this. When your father determines that it's time for you to be carried, you can run your feet as fast as you want. You can flail everywhere you can. But he will be the one carrying you. Jesus, from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us, determines that this woman in the midst of what we're going to see is real need, is going to meet the real Savior on this day. Can you trace the movement of God in your life? Have you paused long enough and looked back with enough attention to see the way that the Lord has and is pursuing you? This day for this woman was just another hard moment in a hard life. And it was not by chance that the Lord was there with her. He had come for her. He had come to interrupt her story and to fold her into His story. This is the introduction of Jesus to this woman and next he extends her an invitation jesus asks for a drink of water and the woman responds like this in verse 9 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. You know, one of the things that become obvious really early in our and any human's story with Christ is that we are incompatible with him. This woman unwittingly confesses what is true for all humanity when she is face to face with Jesus. She says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, this is the truth, not just for her, but for all of humanity. And it has nothing to do with the fact that she is a Samaritan, but that she is a part of broken, sinful creation. All throughout the New Testament and the Gospels, we see interactions like this. One of my favorite, Peter, when he first is introduced to Jesus, he climbs out of the boat and he falls on his face before Jesus and he asks Jesus, please leave me because I'm a sinful man. He comes face to face with Jesus and so glorious and holy and perfect is Jesus and so sinful and broken is he that all he can think to say to Jesus is, Please leave. We are incompatible. Another story of an interaction with Jesus. There's a Roman centurion whose servant needs healing. And he he comes to Jesus and he says, At my home is a servant who is deathly ill. Can you heal him? And Jesus says, Take me to your home. And the centurion says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Just speak a word and he will be healed even john the baptist whom jesus himself said was the greatest human ever born by a woman confessed that he was unworthy to untie the straps of jesus's sandals listen this is a part of our story with jesus it's a part of everyone's story But we don't sit up here, and Pastor Brett, when he leads us into confession, we don't just proclaim that we are unworthy of Jesus, or that we are incompatible with him in our broken state, or that we are sinful and broken and he is glorious and holy as a way to place a burden on us. We proclaim it, one, yes, because it's true, but because it makes the story of Jesus' pursuit of us not lesser. It makes it so much better that he circumvents, passes over, pushes through our inadequacy and our incompatibility in order to come and be with us. But she's not just incompatible with Jesus. She doesn't even see him correctly. She doesn't see that he is truly beautiful or wonderful or worthy. She doesn't see that he is the one that she ultimately needs. Jesus says, if you knew who I was, I wouldn't be asking you for water. You'd be asking me for a drink. Like, Let me, let me just say this. If you and I saw Jesus clearly, There would be no need for me to be up here. There would be no need for a call to action or a call to repentance 
or a call to lay down everything else and to cling to Jesus, if we saw Jesus for who he truly was, we would sprint to him. We would move heaven and earth as much as we could to get to him. But we don't. This right here is a picture of what Paul means when he says we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That the hardness of our heart without the power of the Spirit, we can sit face to face with the one person, the one thing, the one hope that we desperately need. And we wouldn't even ask for a drink of water. Jesus tells her, if you only knew, you would ask me for a drink, and the drink that I would give you would be living water. I love this. The woman clearly doesn't understand, but at least she's being honest with Jesus. She says to him, how are you going to get water? You don't have anything to draw from the well. That well was probably a hundred feet deep, maybe. And all she can think is, you're in worse shape than I am. That's why you're asking me for a drink of water. And besides, you think your water is so great, is it greater than our father Jacob, a patriarch of God's people? But Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, there's a theme in the book of John of of water. Jesus turns water into wine. We're told that there is plenty of water. And so Jesus and John baptize together. And here Jesus at the well asks for a drink of water but promises a living water. But it's not just in the Gospel of John. It's really all throughout Scripture. We're told early on in the book of Genesis that there were lush rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden. We're told early on in Genesis that there are famines and droughts in the land as the world begins to crumble under the weight of sin and death. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 2 that the Lord God says that there are two primary sins that His people have committed. That they have forsaken Him, the fountain of living water. A stream of water that never runs dry and instead they've tried to provide for themselves by digging out cisterns, vats, holes in the ground to try and hold water except for the fact that those cisterns are broken and they leak And they run dry. Jesus is telling her, can't you see that you come back here every day because your thirst is never quenched? This woman has spent her whole life trying to find significance and value, approval, comfort, pleasure, joy, hope and she has failed to find it and Jesus says he is offering her something that will finally quench the deepest desires of her heart his invitation is living water but can we be honest with ourselves and with this woman and say his invitation is hard to grasp Like, this is the conversation that most of us are having in gospel community. Most of us here on Sundays, living water, living water, living water, it sounds great. Spiritual water, it sounds great. And then we get into gospel community, and here's what it sounds like. Yeah, but I'm really thirsty right now. And I need something that won't just parch my theoretical thirst. My lips are cracked, my throat is dry. I need something tangible that will satisfy. And Jesus is telling us, listen, my water is not theoretical. 
It's not some notional spiritual water. It will deeply, forever, truly, really satisfy. The story continues on in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Tim Keller one of the other authors. And one of my favorite quotes said this. He said, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. Let me say that again. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. But to be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. Rachel and I got married in 2007. And uh, we, we like to jokingly say that the first years of our marriage consisted of two totally different people being married to each other. And it wasn't that we have somehow become much better people since the first years of our marriage. The truth was that for the first five months or so that we knew each other, we got, let's see, we met in June, we got engaged in September, and married in December. So it was, it was quick. We had spent trying to convince the other person that we were, I was like, I, I tried to convince Rachel, listen, I'm a really good guy. I am the type of guy that you want to marry. Like, you have met your Prince Charming. And she bought it. But see, here's the bad part. Then we got married, and all I could think was, oh no. One day, she's going to find out, that's not who I am. And what I didn't know was what she was thinking is, oh no. One day, he's going to find out that this best face forward that I've placed in our relationship as I've tried to be the woman that he really wants or really needs is not the woman that I actually am. We spent the first year of our marriage married to people that didn't exist. And we were both deathly afraid that the other one would find out and that eventually we'd be rejected. Eventually our spouse would turn to us and say, this isn't who I thought you were, and this person I don't want. Jesus brings up the worst parts of this woman's life in his interaction with her. It, it almost feels harsh. Like, Jesus, gosh, man, going for the jugular. Having a nice little conversation, telling her like, hey, I, I've, I've got this living water to offer you. Like, man, that's a good invitation. Then Jesus is like, hey, uh, why don't we talk about those uh, five husbands that you've married and then left and then the guy you're sleeping with right now? I love her response. Ah, I see you are a prophet. Because <laughs> I can tell you what her response inside was, and it wasn't, I can see you are a prophet. Right, like, Jesus, come, like, what? Why do you have to drag up the worst parts of her story? And the truth is that he does that because he's kind. Because the love of God is not just bigger and better because he's God and we're not. The love of God is bigger and better because he knows us. And he's trying to tell her, my invitation to you is not conditioned on something that I think that you are, but you're not really, or some person that you may one day be. I know the depths of your brokenness, and I'm offering you living water. 
I remember in an assessment that Rachel and I went to one time before we planted Mercy's Door, uh, a, a pastor asked me, he said, when do you feel most loved by God? And uh, I thought two things. I thought, that's a really good question. The second one was, I got to come up with a really good spiritual answer here. But I sat there and I thought about it and I'm like, okay, maybe I should tell him like, well, after I've spent my six hours in meditative prayer in the morning, really feel loved by the Lord. Um, but I don't spend six hours in meditative prayer in the morning. And so as I sat there and I thought about it, what came out of my mouth uh, immediately without even really thinking was, I feel really loved by God when I fail and I'm forced to repent. And he looked at me and he said, what? And I kind of looked at me and went, what? But the truth was, in those moments, after I failed and fell on my face, and had to, with my own mouth, confess the depths of my sin, then when I heard the gospel, gosh, I felt like I could really believe it. Because in that moment, I wasn't pretending, which is what I spend most of my life, if I'm not careful and if I'm not being honest, doing, is trying to be a far better version of me than the actual version of me. But in those moments, it's me that's being loved. And Jesus says to her, hey, listen, we're going to bring it all out on the table because then I'm going to look you in the face and I'm going to tell you, I love you. Listen, the cross has outed all of us. It has declared from all history the depths of your sin and shame and guilt that you are covered in. And I want you to hear this. It's worse than you realize. You know, I'm, I'm getting to that age where my wife apparently is watching me get older because she keeps saying things like, hey, have you done your physical this year? I'm like, what makes you think that I need one? What about me screams, better get him into the doctor. And here's the deal. I go in for my physical and I have a pretty low expectation, right? I'm like, eh, he's going to point some things out. But I've never walked away from a physical going, well, the news was way better than I thought. Like, it's always like, oh, hey, have you thought about getting on cholesterol medication? I'm like, hey, have you thought about not being my doctor anymore? Can we not have that conversation, please? It's always worse than I imagined. But it's important that I find out. Because if I don't, then I can't deal with it. And what I want you to hear is, it's worse than you imagine. Like If we took your heart out and put it on the table and started sifting through your thoughts, started sifting through the things that actually motivate you in this life, started sifting through the things that you are willing to do and the way that you are willing to treat people in order to get the things that you think you need, it's ugly. And here's what I want, you to tell, I want you to hear. While you and I are standing appalled at our own thoughts and motives and desires and sinfulness and selfishness, the Lord Jesus looks at that same heart and says, that's mine. I love him. I love her. This is our Savior. The interaction with Jesus goes on in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. It's now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, the one that's called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. The woman 
in discomfort of being truly seen, she, she turns the, the conversation. She says to him, I perceive you are a prophet. And then in verse 20, she said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I love this. Let me just say this to the church. Theology, most times, is a good way in the church to not actually have to deal with Jesus. I'll say that again. Conversations about the things of God is a really great way to not have to deal with God. For a long time, I used to ask in our gospel communities, hey, what was the thing that stood out to you during the sermon? And I had to stop asking that question because 99% of the time, people would say this, I found it really interesting when you talked about that Greek word and how it meant this. And then the conversation would end right there. I'm like, that's fantastic. I know nothing about who you are, what the Lord is dealing with with you. You didn't have to be honest or vulnerable at all. Because that's safer. Talking about the things of God rather than what the Lord is actually doing in our heart is way safer. And so the woman says, um... You know, let's not talk about my husbands. Let's talk about the, di the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans about how and where we worship. That's safer. Right? You guys grew up and you were heard there's like certain things you can't talk about at the table. Right? Like don't talk about religion or politics. Right? Here she is going, talking about religion and politics seems ten times safer than talking about my life. And it's true. Like, you know, somebody pushes in and says, hey, Michael, um, how's your marriage? And I'm like, man, uh, did you hear about the new vaccine mandate? I'd love to talk to you about critical race theory and uh, systemic racism in the United States. How about the presidential election or what's going on in Europe? Right? Like, anything to get out of that discussion. And Jesus pushes in and he says, no. So he turns it back. He says, fine, you want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about your worship. And I'm about to turn your worship or your idea of worship on its head. You, like everyone else, think that worship is really about going to the right place and doing the right things with the right people, and then the Lord God will be pleased. But there is coming a day, and it is here now, where worship will be between you and the face of God, your Creator. You will worship in spirit and truth. The big divide between the Jews and the Samaritans were that after the division between Judah and Israel, the split of the kingdom, the northern kingdom, who would turn into the Samaritans, built their own temple. Those in Judah got upset, they went up to Samaria, and they destroyed the temple. And then, they said the only true place to worship was in the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, Samaritans are no longer allowed in that temple. And Jesus says, there's coming a day where I'm doing away with all of that. We're told on the cross after his death, the curtain in the temple that separated sinful man from the holiness of God was torn in two. John Piper, a pastor I love, once said this, the forgiveness of your sins is not the point of Christ's death on the cross. I said, uh-oh. Either you've lost it or I've been preaching it wrong the entire time. He said, the forgiveness of your sins is not the point of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Instead, it was simply a necessary step to the ultimate end, which is not just your forgiveness, but that you would be forever in the intimate presence of God, finally able to truly glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Jesus says to the woman, listen, what you need is not to have your physical circumstances settled. It's not to have political circumstances settled. It's not to have religious circumstances settled. What you need is to be face-to-face -face with your God. She comes to her final barrier and says, okay, I want it. 
but I can't get it. I can't reach that far. I can't fix myself. Only the Savior, only my rescuer can do that. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and tells her, that's me. The story continues on over the next several verses. We're told just then the disciples come back and they marvel that Jesus was talking with a woman, let alone a Samaritan one. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, the thing that she thought she needed to come get. And she went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. The disciples come back. They seem flustered and a bit confused as he, they see Jesus with this Samaritan woman. She leaves, and as they're fumbling for words, they tell him that they have found food. And Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him food to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have now entered into their labor. Jesus responds with a confusing analogy. He sends them to get food and they come back and they say, Jesus, we, we have food. And he said, I've already eaten. And one of them pipes up. Again, I love the honesty of the disciples and say, who, who brought you food? And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know of. And he goes on to describe that the food that he's speaking of, what has filled him up, is doing the will of his Father. Like, do you see what fills Jesus up? Do, do you see what makes him full inside, content, what pleases him and brings him joy? He's filled, coming face to face, with the depths of despair and brokenness in humanity. He's filled by coming face to face with a woman caught in an unending loop of sin. He's filled by breaking through fear and doubt. And he's filled by offering himself as the one living water that truly satisfies. Why do we stay away from him? When we sin and we fall and we stumble... And we feel like we need to clean ourselves up before we go back into his presence when he says, come to me. In my presence is fullness of joy. Come to me. It fills me up. It brings me great joy when you access the gifts of my grace and mercy. His desire is that we would come into his presence. And that we would experience to taste and see the living water that he offers us. Listen, this is the story of this woman. And as I've told you, it's the story of us. But I want you to hear this. This is not just the story of how we met Christ Jesus. It's the story of every day for us. I'll end here. I was in a cohort about, oh, it's been about a year and a half ago. Um, I was going through a really spiritually dry season, and I, I saw uh, an email that came across in my inbox for a cohort on personal spiritual renewal, and it was being led by a, a pastor that I knew and, and really trusted. And so I, I signed up, and I told Rachel, I said, hey, this is it's once a week for the next six weeks. I have no clue if it's going to be good or anything else. And the first couple of weeks went by, and we would talk after the, the, the calls that we had. And she said, hey, how's the cohort going? And I said, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing it. It's, it's been okay. And she said, well, just stick it out. 
so the next week we we were supposed to have a, a cohort call and and we were camping uh, out at Carlisle and I'm like you know what I'm just gonna skip the call and she said no just take an hour go drive somewhere and, and get on the call and so I got on the call and I was talking with the guy that leads it and we were talking about listen personal spiritual renewal is driven by believing the gospel I'm like yes and amen absolutely and so we're talking about how we believe the gospel, and I was talking about preaching the gospel to myself and reminding me of what myself, what Jesus has done, and he stopped me in the middle of it, and he said, Michael, listen to me. My greatest hope for you is not that you would preach the gospel to yourself. He said, my greatest hope for you is that you would wake up each day and the Father in heaven would preach the gospel to you. And it shattered my world. Like I, I knew that Jesus had met me at the well in my life many years ago. But what I didn't realize was that I was still coming back to the well again and again. And the better truth is that Jesus was still willing to meet me there day after day after day after day. You feel dry today? He's waiting for you. You feel distant today? He's waiting there for you. You feel discontent today? He's waiting there for you. You feel like your life is out of control? He is waiting there for you. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55. The words of Christ, His invitation to us. Come, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, wine and milk, purchase without money and without price. Incline your ear, he says, and come to me. Hear from me that your soul may live. Jesus is waiting again for us to declare His goodness and His grace and to offer us living water that will always satisfy. Let's pray.